0: Verses 1 through 15. So as I've been praying this week, as I've been just reflecting while driving, because I drive to NRBC every day, so it's 30 minutes back and forth, just thinking and praying. Just these drop some stuff on my heart. So I hope you're ready to receive a word tonight because I'm, I'm ready to give one. So Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. You've got version, you can open that. But then also what I love about Faith Lutheran and what they'll have soon at NRBC is if you don't have a Bible, under your pew is a Bible, right? NRBC, they're going to be able to do that soon. But I enjoy that. So if you got a Bible, Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. It says, very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked. For he realized by now that the leading priest had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. So come on, the sermon tonight, this one-time sermon is called Doppelganger. But Before I even preach tonight, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. That's just as relevant now as it was when we first learned about it. It's just as relevant now as when it happened 2,000 years ago. It's just as relevant now in this moment as it's going to be next week at Easter. Lord God, so I pray that you would impart something to us tonight. Inspire us tonight through the work of your Holy Spirit. God, use this word, your word, your living word, to impact our hearts and impact our lives in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So let me ask you a question just to start. Do you know what happened Seven years ago this weekend, blank stares, rolling eyes, somebody's probably Googling the date. That's the exact same stare I had. I was asked that question a little over a week ago by my sister in a group text message with Steph. She said, do you know what happened seven years ago this weekend? We looked at each other because we had no idea felt like a trap question like is it their anniversary and we forgot like is it my nephew's seventh birthday and in my head I'm rolling through it's like no no it felt like uh what was it I know what you did last summer but remixed like does she know something she shouldn't know what is going on and she didn't text back right away too right we texted back like lol no no idea what is it and she didn't text back for a while but finally she had been on Facebook and saw on time hop that seven years ago I think I asked Rick to date staff or something like that she saw it on time hop that'll get you But there are are real trap questions, like when people ask, can I be honest? Usually that's a trap, and they're really asking, can I be rude real quick, right? Or or, can we talk? Such a simple three-word question that usually means, do you have three to 30 minutes to resolve some conflict that I have with you? Other questions you never want to hear. Are you tired? That just means you look tired. And when somebody tells you you look tired, you look like crap. (laughs) I don't get this often, but I have got it before. Is that what you're wearing? So Steph doesn't say that to me often, but I know when she does, I've really screwed up. Have you gained weight? right I'm trying to gain like gains hashtag gains. I'm trying to add muscle, but can't have you gained weight? That's not a question you really want to hear. One that gets Steph Where do we want to eat? Any husbands feel me on that? Just blows her mind she, she can't even process. The question I, 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 I don't like to hear, I'm sure you don't either, is, is when you're asked for your ID. Not at the grocery store, sometimes that's cute because they think you're younger than you are, right? But I'm talking about when they're asking for your ID and registration. When there's a police officer outside your window asking for your ID, for your license, and uh, I had way too much experience that with Prince William County police officers when I was a teenager. I've done, I've done well down on the, in this side. But it's a tough question for many, one that we'd rather not tackle, which is, what's your ID? What's your identity? It's not so easy to respond to. You give them your license, point to your career, point to your house, point to your family, point to your skill set, maybe your hobby, point to your citizenship. The phrase identity crisis is thrown around a lot, almost to the point where it's cliché. I Google identity crisis, and most of the articles are about movies. Like, the plot has an identity crisis. That's what they would be talking about. But it's important because identity informs activity. And so many in the world today, they're active. So many movies, right, that are action movies are filled with action, but they lack a sure identity. And our identity should inform our activity. We define, though, and direct ourselves out of so many finite and fleeting sources of identity. Again, our socioeconomic status, where we fall on a pay scale, our job and the home or car it pays for, our social media profile that functions as our like personal highlight reel, right? How we're physically made up, our race, our fitness. I'm convinced that most people that go to the gym, maybe not most, but a lot of people that go to the gym are more concerned with their image and identity than they are their health. That's why you see guys Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it's all curls and bench press, right? Because they're only worried about, again, that highlight reel on Instagram. You put them on a treadmill, their legs will snap or their lungs will pop within a mile. But uh, the problem is we can lose it. That job, that family, that house, that car. And as I'm learning this side of 30, you can lose that physique as well, right? The metabolism doesn't keep up with your age But one source of identity that is both profound and permanent is God's word. It says that we're created in God's image in Genesis and then page after page, book after book, it pours truth into our identity, our purpose, and why we're here. And one of the most beautiful images that informs our identity within Scripture is that God is our Father, our Abba Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. There are many verses in scripture that speak to God the Father. There's many verses as well that speak to sons and sonship, or more specifically, son of. The son of man is referenced in the gospels over 80 times. Why is that? It's because it's one of Jesus' favorite ways to reference himself. It both emphasizes his humanity, but then it points back to prophecies in the book of Daniel that speak to his his personality, his person as God's son, that he's the son of God. When he says it before the religious leaders who arrested him, it got him crucified. Why? Because it was his way of saying, I'm not just the son of man, I'm the son of God. Rewind to his baptism in the book of Matthew, and when he's baptized, the sky opens. God the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's after that affirmation that his ministry starts. Because, again, our identity informs our activity. And God was saying, this is my son. I am his father. And that informed Jesus' activity. Jesus as the son of God, our heavenly father, it defined his ministry. His affirmation sparked his actions. And in today's society, where fathers seem more and more fleeting as sources of identity, God as our father has profound meaning. Romans 8.29 says, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, speaking to those who would become a part of the family of faith. Ephesians 1.5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the son of God the father, and we're called to see ourselves the same way. How many of you guys are familiar with the term doppelganger? Heard it before. It is German for the term double walker the idea of a duplicate self. It can be a legitimate psychological disorder when the process in our brain by which we form our identity is fractured. Now, I love psychology 101 in college, so when I was Googling this, researching this, I spent way too much time reading about it, so bear with me right now, but a a psychologist says this, the brain generates our experience of self by merging information about our body from external sources such as the eyes, the ears, and the skin, and internal sources such as the heart and the stomach. A lesion in the insular cortex, all I know is that someone in your brain, prevents the brain from integrating the body's external and internal perceptions. The brain tries to solve this by coming up with the most plausible explanation, a second self in the form of a doppelganger. So it's seeing yourself outside of your body. It's trippy, but now you understand the plot between Fight Club. But uh, doppelganger was also a Facebook trend from some years ago. How many of you guys remember this? The idea was you would post your look-alike, somebody that looks like your twin. But what more often happened is you would find somebody that you wish you looked like, who maybe has, like, one feature. Like, Brad Pitt's got my ears. So you see all these dudes putting up pictures of, like, Brad Pitt, ladies picking up pictures of, like, Halle Berry and and Jennifer Aniston. And, like, that's who I look like. But how many of you guys remember what yours was? Or if you're not on Facebook, what are some people that others say you look like? Denise. Who? Wait. Oh, got you. Got you. Got you. Nice. <laughs> Who else? People you said are you lookalike. Nate. <laughs> Garth Brooks. I don't know if I've ever seen you in a cowboy hat, but I trust you on that. <laughs> Anybody else lookalikes? Steph. Amanda Bynes. <laughs> Oh, Anthony, sorry, I didn't see you back there. Matt D- I can see that. <laughs> Matt Dillon. What's funny is, as I was prepping this morning, one of my buddies from college posted a picture. Ten years ago today, I was a member of the African-American Male Coalition at William & Mary. And uh, <laughs> I was an officer in the African-American Male Coalition. So they posted this picture, and they would joke me often, and it's followed me my whole life, that whatever Caucasian white rapper, I look like him. So 8 Mile came out when college was starting. It was on the college network all the time, and their running joke was, hey, Juice, how much they pay you to play Rabbit? Like, how many millions you make in this movie? Because they thought I looked like Eminem. And I thought that was a low point, but then my wife turned on me. Just last year, we brought in, like, the G- Dream Junkies. It's a Christian hip-hop group, and there's one white guy in that group. She's like, you look like Ruslan. I was like, no, I don't. But even that's not the lowest point. There was when the whole doppelganger thing was going on and people were commenting on pictures who I looked like, there was somebody who said that I look like Paul Wall. Now, if you don't know who Paul Wall is, I see here a lot of silence. It's because he hasn't made any significant music in his entire life. But let me show you why I was so upset that they said I look like Paul Wall, because Paul Wall looks like this. See if I can get it to go. Paul Wall, yeah, that's what Paul Wall looked like. Not only does he look nothing like me, he's got about 50 to pounds on me. I don't remember who posted that on my Facebook, but if I did, I would find them and slap them. But nobody during Doppelganger Month on social media put up a picture of a guy that looks like this either. How many you guys know who that is or what that's from? Anybody? Yeah, Barabbas from the movie The Passion. Yeah, uh I'm not sure why, but as a young adult, I feel like most portrayals of Barabbas that I would see him, they kind of left him looking like a little loony and a tad bit freakish. Like, this is a guy you don't want to meet in an alley because he would just eat your arm and walk away or something crazy. Right? Like, just look like a freak, like a villain from a horror movie. Like, if they released him, they're saying, hide your kids, hide your wife, not cheering for him. But history tells it different. Some historians would tell you that he was imprisoned and sentenced to crucifixion for taking part in a riotous revolt against wrongful Roman occupation of Palestine. We'll get into it more, but he was more Spartacus than he was Hannibal Lecter. He was more a raging rebel than a crazed, slobbering villain. And why does that matter? Why does he matter? Well, as we gear up for Easter and the week known as Passion Week, if you flash to the morning of Good Friday around 7 a.m., Mark 15 happens. This passage where he's standing behind, or excuse me, before, the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. The Jews want Jesus crucified, but under Roman law, Pilate had found him innocent. Matter of fact, three times in Luke 23, that tells the same account from Pilate's own lips. He says that Jesus was innocent, could find no charge against him. So he makes a case. Every year during Passover, a prisoner would get a pardon and be let free, kind of like the presidential pardon, (laughs) except he gives them the choice, Jesus or Barabbas. And again, we don't generally see ourselves In Barabbas. We don't typically spend a lot of time on Barabbas. Commentaries couldn't find a lot on him. Not a lot of people preach on him. Not a lot of books are written on him. He didn't get any lines in the Passion of Christ. He kind of giggles, grunts a lot, and he does this weird thing with his tongue at one of the guards. Like, you're like, I'm supposed to identify with this guy, right? He's a weirdo, but he's significant in Scripture because he's the first substitution of the cross, the first person freed by Jesus' sacrifice, physically from chains, But this detail isn't lost on our God, who's sovereign over all history and is sovereign over everything recorded in Scripture, every detail. Anyone who experiences the freedom that Jesus brings can relate to the freeing of Barabbas from physical chains. At the core of history, literally splitting, B.C. from A.D. is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, sitting on death row like Barabbas, in chains spiritually, Jesus Christ died for us. He subbed in. It's what many would call substitutionary atonement. He subbed in. He took the charge. It's at the center of the gospel that Jesus died to set me free, taking all my sin so that we could experience life through his righteousness. And again, Barabbas was the first substitute for Jesus, freed physically. And everyone who would step under the substitutionary atonement of Christ would have to identify with him, see him as our doppelganger. Those who know what Jesus accomplished on the cross know that his story is our story spiritually. The portrait of his escape from death, Barnabas's escape from death, is identical to our escape from the wages of sin. And as a result, this informs our activity and purpose in this life. We're pardoned for a purpose that keeps us from baseless busyness that lacks identity. Because this passage in three people, mostly Barabbas, but also the crowd, And also ultimately in Jesus, it speaks deeply to our identity and the activity we're called to in three ways. The first way tonight is that we shared the same sentence as Barabbas. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you may have heard of Romans Road. If you haven't, look it up. It's a way to walk people through the gospel. It starts with Romans 3.23, which says what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think a lot of us like to look at life Like a a Nike commercial, a Gatorade commercial. No, Nike, just do it. Why did I think Gatorade is just do it? Nike, just do it. Pursue your dreams. If you try hard, you can achieve it. Really, spiritually, our life is a lot more like those old life alert commercials. You know what I'm talking about? I've fallen and I can't get up. That's truly us spiritually. That's us spiritually. We're crippled in need of healing. We're When you read scriptures, we're like that person on the side of the road that cried out to Jesus and the disciples to change their lives because they needed a miracle. We needed a miracle spiritually. Because Romans 6.26 would also tell us that we are prisoners on death row spiritually. Because Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Spiritually, we're cellmates with Barabbas. We're sharing a cell with Barabbas. Now, one of Paul's buddies named Joe came in here. With a, with a uniform before service. And we're all looking around like, oh, what, what happened? What did we do? Right? But he was just checking us out. But I can remember the first time, again, I don't, when people ask your ID and registration. Whew, I can remember the first time I got a, a ticket. I was 16 years old. Hadn't even had my license for a year. Now, it was definitely a speed trap. It was, you know, two lanes, 40 to 25. And uh, they pulled over like seven people. I thought I was going with the flow of traffic. But I got a ticket. I went home. I thought it was the end of my life. I was staring at the wall just, like, fuming, thinking, like, I don't know. But my mom had to come and console me and be like, we're, we're not mad. They're not going to take your license. And she had to, like, talk me out of just these, these doldrums, this depression. And, and, you know, what? I got a ticket about a year or two ago. I was on my way from the Mosaic to Chick-fil-A. I didn't stop all the way to stop sign. And I, he came to the window. I was like, what did I do? And then he told me. I was like, yeah, that's probably the case. I apologized, took the ticket, paid for it. Didn't lose any sleep about it. Didn't lose any sleep about my walk on the wrong side of the law, not stopping at this stop sign. Didn't feel like I needed to forgive anybody, right? Just paid the ticket and went went on with my life. You know, worst case, unless you do something truly reckless, is you have to take a class, which is like rehab for drivers. But Barabbas wasn't in some rehab or 12-step program for a mild infraction. He was sitting on death row awaiting his crucifixion. Sin is more than a personal, impersonal infraction, Of heavenly regulation. It's a rejection of God himself. It's creation rejecting creator. Our brokenness in life is somehow so quickly and easily verified, yet we're so quick to deny it. It's so self-evident, yet at the same time so hard to come to grips with. It should cause me to daily cry out for grace. Because if I can't identify with Barabbas on some level, if I can't identify with the need for a righteous substitute, If I'm not admitting to myself that I'm in daily and desperate need for the grace of God, if I haven't abandoned my confidence in my own righteousness, then I'm going to give myself to the work of convincing myself that I'm okay. I don't need to change. Circumstances or people around me need to change. I build elaborate, seemingly logical arguments that I'm okay. Rather than casting myself at the foot of a Savior, I put on my Savior hat. But spiritually, that's like putting a bag over my head because I need grace like I need the air I breathe. You know, grace isn't just a one-time event at an altar. I need grace daily. I need it desperately. But denying that grace or that need for grace is what the world does every day. This game of hide and seek where we hide our weaknesses and seek identity and all the wrong things, but it's what we're called out of. And yet we get what an author Paul Tripp calls gospel amnesia. We forget to identify with God's grace, to preach to ourselves the gospel of grace we eagerly offer to others, We forget the sentence we shared with the lost, one of death. And it's a dangerous place to be because, as he says in his book, the the people that dispense grace the best are the ones that have experienced it the most, that grasp the grace they've received and how great it is. We can't forget a grace as miraculous as what Barabbas experienced, being freed by an innocent man, the son of man, Jesus. You know, Jesus shows himself as reversing the irreversible, what seemingly couldn't be reversed. A death sentence, and then days later, death itself. And it speaks to the fact that Jesus can redeem, Jesus can restore, Jesus can rescue, Jesus can renew. It's the beauty at the heart of the gospel. It's at the core of the good news. But before we get to that, we have to understand our own brokenness. Before you can understand the depths of grace, you have to understand the depths of sin. Before you can understand Jesus subbing in for you, you have to understand where you were in a cell with Barabbas spiritually. Before we identify with Christ and his righteousness, we're called to identify with Barabbas and his sentence. Spiritually, we too sit on death row without the grace of God, if we were without the grace of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. But our problem isn't just sharing the sentence of Barabbas. It's also in sharing the sentiments of the crowd that day. Now, if we were to do word association, and I were to say the word palm, not the palm of your hand, but the palm on a tree, probably think, yeah, Palm Sunday's tomorrow. Think of vacations, beaches, really blue water, What Palm Beach is in California, palm, palm Hotel, Palm Casino in Vegas, that's a thing. I would think about vacation. But again, tomorrow, like like Denise said, is Palm Sunday. But they weren't trying to fan him with the palms to keep him cool. He wasn't eating grapes like you see pictures of. They were trying to hail their king that they hoped would take the throne. This was a triumphant entry common in the ancient world where kings would return with the spoils of battle. Palms were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. They were used at the dedication of the temple after the Maccabean victory. During wars with Rome, palms were stamped on the coins minted by the rebels. And this word, hosanna, that they're, they're shouting out, means save now. Save us now. They wanted Jesus to spark a revolution and win their freedom. And this echoes the cry. It's not the first time, it echoes the cry of the, the 5,000 that Jesus feeds. It says after that passage that they attempted to take him by force and make him king. They wanted to spark this revolution that would bring them their freedom. Yet the symbol, of Jesus's movement wasn't a a patriotic palm leaf, but it was a sacrificial lamb. And when he died on the cross, it cast discouragement and doubt on those who were impassioned by political fervor. In contrast, Barabbas was a man of violent action who had murdered as a part of a revolution and an insurrection. The word robber that we get in the King James Version, a, a lot of translators and theologians say that's probably mistranslated. Secular historian from that age, Josephus, used the same word he used to describe Barabbas as he did to describe religious zealots. Josephus also said that the region of Galilee was a haven for bandits, and that many were crucified when they were caught. And these bandits would have been seen as terrorists by the elite, but to the people subjected to oppression, they would have been like a Robin Hood, right? Like a like a hero. Others contend that Barabbas was what Josephus would have meant by the word, a boat rocker, an agitator a revolutionary, who took part in a violent revolt against Roman rule, and quite possibly, Barabbas on this day wasn't some villain, wasn't some menace to the Jews, but he was a borderline hero. You know, I look at this choice for Barabbas, especially when you look at pictures and portrayals from the passion of Christ, and I'm like, who in their right mind would pick Barabbas over Jesus? It's kind of like when when you're reading Genesis, you're like, who in their right mind would actually take a bite of that apple? And talk to a snake and be like, oh, yeah, he's right. Like, you just think, how? What fool would do that? And then, of course, I live life. And I realize day after day, I'm biting apples every time I choose what I want over what God commands. My desire over obedience to God. And it's the same thing with Barabbas. I realize I choose the same way when I act instinctively to protect my own interests, regardless of the interests of others. When I chase my costly dreams but run from the cost of discipleship. When I fight to build my kingdom rather than build God's kingdom. When I pin my hopes to circumstances in this life over the life to come. Or when I fight desperately to find my identity rather than giving it to God. If that crowd of people was to show up again to choose between Barabbas and Jesus, and it was a crowd of unredeemed Justins, it would no doubt Barabbas would win again hands down. Because let's be serious. The crowd, yes, it was led by the religious leaders to choose Jesus, true. But they were also watching the man that they had screamed Hosanna to, save us now, and he was seemingly willingly going down without much of a fight. They wanted a sudden overthrow of their enemies. They wanted what we so often see from our heroes in Hollywood, right? You're oppressed, you're pushed to the brink, and then you strike back violently with a vengeance. They wanted the death of their enemies, but Jesus was dying for their enemies. Oh, he was saving them but not in the way they were looking for. In our culture, we've been conditioned to choose the forceful, overpowering option over the meek and humble one, the one that's often costly. And it's a fatal preference. In Jewish culture, as an indirect result of the decision to choose violence and self-interest, the violence of renegades like Barabbas escalated against Rome until Rome finally struck back, destroyed Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. What they fought to save, they ended up losing. Those who want to find their life will lose it. Jesus said it himself. And I'm not saying that faith doesn't fight. But Jesus showed us what our fight should look like. Jesus set the pattern we're called to follow in, one that follows God's will over the way that seems right to men. And we know from the book of Proverbs, not just once but twice, he says the way that seems right to man so often leads to death. When we fight for our identity outside of the one that God gives us, we choose Barabbas. But to end on an uplifting note, (laughs) we share the sentence of Barabbas. We share the same sentiments of the crowd, but we share in the sonship of Jesus. See, Steph and I, most of you know this already, we're adopting internationally. And we were in the Ethiopia program for two and a half to three years, and we were uh, slated to adopt a zero to three-year-old that was a male. So we had a name picked out, Titus Lee White. That was going to be his name. Team Titus. Was, was a hashtag. I had a buddy who went to Europe, found some skateboarding company called Titus, bought me a shirt, a bunch of stickers. But because of stuff that happened internationally with the international adoption process, my wife and I recently switched from Ethiopia to India. And part of that is we're now open to adopting a boy or a girl zero to three. But unlike Paul and Paula, Joseph and Josephine, or George and Georgia, Titus doesn't have a, a female equivalent. Even though I tried to sell Stefan Titesia or Titisia, I don't know, but she she wasn't biting on anything I came up with. Titisia Leia instead of Lee, I don't know. There's possibilities. But we're back to the all important conversation about names. Names m- mean things. I don't even want to throw names out there cuz I don't know what your brothers and sisters are named, I don't know what your parents are named, what your grandparents were named, but there are names, common names. I'm looking at these names. One means dark one, one means a female name means to gain fat. And one means ugly head. Names are important. Throughout the Bible, we see offspring that are named after the circumstances of their birth or they're named after what they physically looked like. Names are also important in the Old Testament. If you've been reading through the Bible in a year, you've already worked through numbers and you see name after name after name. And that was important to the Israelites. Because through their genealogy, they could point back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and say, I'm a part of that blessing. I'm a part of God's people. So the prefix on a name Bar meant son of. So that was important. Son of. Think Bartimaeus was son of Timaeus. And then Abba means father. So Barabbas' name means son of the father. And it's always fascinated me because Jesus claimed as the son of God, as the son of man, to be son of the father. For some people, that's too perfect, as if the God of history couldn't orchestrate that. And then again, bar was a common prefix, and they've seen uh, burial tombs outside of Jerusalem with the name Abba over and over again. So this name is entirely possible, except where Jesus' father was God, we and Barabbas are sons of Adam, born of flesh into flesh. Your daddy might be bigger than my daddy. Your daddy might be able to beat up my daddy, but your daddy is still a son of Adam, born into sin, born into flesh. Jesus was the son of God. We're born to sinners born into a lineage of sin. See, Jesus was the righteous son of God, yet we were condemned sons of Adam, like Barabbas. See, one part of our identity that informs our actions that's profound and permanent is our family name, our lineage, our blood. There's three generations of Nawatneys at this church, right? The Whites, the Kearneys, the Thomasons, the Lees. You could go on and on. Those names are passed down from generation to generation informs our identity. For some of us, that's a good thing. For some of us, we'd rather it not. It's less than reassuring. Again, fathers, this key to our forming of our identity, it's a fleeting thing. Rutgers University recently did a a survey that found the percentage of American children living apart from their biological fathers will reach 50% by this century. This fatherlessness is shown again and again, too, to play into our culture's identity crisis. But you know what? You don't like your family tree? At the cross, Jesus planted a new one. And that's not to, that's not to replace your family, but it is to feed your identity, to feed a healthy identity that's found in God. Because when we realize we share our predicament with Barabbas and place our faith in Christ, we're adopted as sons and daughters of the Father. That's incredibly significant to our identity. And again, our identity dictates our actions, and it gives us courage to act. We had our last life group this week, our, our one. The others are still going. Nate and Laura just launched theirs. There's a shameless drop. Tuesday nights go out. But life group this week, we had our last one, and, and one of the questions we asked each other is, what are you afraid of? What are some things that you're afraid of in life? And one of the ones that was repeated is, I'm afraid of disappointing myself, others. God, not succeeding, not having the answer in the moment. You know, about a year ago in my journal, I was reflecting on places I find my identity, roles I'm called to walk in. Husband, soon to be father, pastor. These are roles that I'll step into in life where I do in order to be the best husband, father, or pastor I can be. At the end of each season, I'll look back on how I did in order to judge how faithful I was and how I walked in the grace God gave me. And if I'm honest, there's ulcer-inducing stress in that if I don't give it to the grace of God, if I don't lean on God's grace. But there's one place in life, being a son of a heavenly father, that has nothing to do with what I've done. It has nothing to do with what I'm going to do, and it has everything to do with the work of Jesus at the cross. See, every other source of identity carries pressure to perform. But sonship empowers me to perform. All these other sources of identity that I look to, we look to, it gives us pressure to perform. But being a son of God, being a daughter of God, it empowers me to perform. It's where I find my purpose, where I find my identity that informs my action. Because fathers set an example. Fathers encourage. Fathers equip. They hold the back of your bike when you're learning how to drive without training wheels, right? They cheer you on. Being a child of God isn't about performance. Rather, it empowers me to perform. It encourages me to perform. When I know who I am, I know what to do. In Ephesians 1-6 that we read earlier, it says we're predestined to adoption through Jesus. And then it says in verse 6, to praise the glory of God's grace. Again, Galatians 4, 6, this beautiful verse says, because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba Father. See, our doppelganger under the blood of Jesus Christ is Jesus himself. When God sees us, he sees his son. And our resemblance is the righteousness that we walk into because of substitutionary atonement, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So if I could close tonight, and we could have the worship team come up. And if you could stand because we're going to work our way back into worship. But if you could stand where you're at, close your eyes. Just imagine this. Imagine your face down. It's damp. It's cold. You're without defense, without hope, just waiting for your crucifixion, the most gruesome death reserved for the most notorious criminals. You get goosebumps, and the hair on your neck stands up as you hear the jingle of keys, but you know they don't mean freedom, rather justice. Then you're pulled out of your cell and into the sun in a giant blur as your eyes adjust. A scene plays out in front of what sounds like a huge crowd. You're set across from Jesus of Nazareth, whose rep has made it into the prison walls. He's a peaceful man who's healed and brought hope to many. And your heart sinks because that's not exactly the juxtaposition you want to stand across from as you've murdered and deserved death row. But in a matter of minutes, you're being set free. The crowd chose you. Yet your impulse isn't to thank the crowd, it's to thank Jesus. Because what happened wasn't justice. An innocent man dying, substituted for a guilty one. What happened wasn't justice. It's grace. And it always intrigues me. I don't know what happened to Barabbas. There's no account of Barabbas ever saying thank you. Did he turn around to look at Christ? Did he fully grasp what happened? Did he watch him take the punishment he, as Barabbas, deserved? Did he repent? Did he go on to murder again? Where was he the weeks, months, and years after Jesus' death and resurrection? What did he do with the grace he was given? Well, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. What am I going to do with the grace I've been given? See, when we're pardoned by a judge, the judge expects us to go out and live a different life. But if Barabbas were to go back out, operate under the same identity that informs the same actions, he would have done the same things because identity informs actions. But we're called to a new identity, a new doppelganger. No longer Barabbas, son of Adam, but Jesus, the son of God. Let your identity as the son and daughter of God empower you to praise the glory of God's grace with all your life. Let peace come to you tonight, knowing the work of the cross is done. Your adoption papers have been filed. You're adopted. Your doing isn't to prove yourself. Your doing is to prove the glory of God's grace. So tonight, if we could just bow our heads and close our eyes. If you've never stepped under the grace of God, you've never asked for the forgiveness that Jesus gave, you've never heard this term substitutionary atonement, but you know you need it. If that's you tonight, you want to step into the grace of God. Again, we're about to go back into worship. And I'm going to name a couple other people from this story, but if that's you, then I want to pray for you tonight. we got resources we want to give you. More than that, Jesus has forgiveness he wants to give you. Jesus has hope he wants to give you. Jesus has life he wants to give you. But then again, if you're here and you've asked Jesus to come into your heart, you've chosen Jesus before, but you find yourself in your life choosing Barabbas. Fighting for identity in the wrong things. Like, come on, tonight, you can lay that down. And maybe you're, like we discussed on Tuesday, you're walking in fear of disappointing God or disappointing others. Well, tonight, you can lay that down, too. Because your identity is son or daughter of God. There's security in that. There's refuge in that. There's strength in that. There's purpose in that. So, come on, if you need prayer for any of those things, come on. The altar's open. There's leaders that can pray for you. But let's go back into worship. Sing a song to Jesus.